All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 13. Or you can turn on your Bibles, I guess, this day and age. Turn on your Bibles, uh, and you can type John 13 in the search bar. Uh, we've been working our way slowly through the Gospel of John, and uh, we, our goal has been in this series to uncover the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ, uh, and, and we're going to do that through, through a look at John's Gospel. And so for the first six or seven months of the series, what we've done is we've looked at chapters 1 through 12, and chapters 1 through 12 are, a, uh, are a, just kind of a soaring uh, overview of the ministry of Jesus, of the three years of public ministry of Jesus Christ. And then starting in chapter 13, uh, John then moves us into a kind of a different uh, chapter of Jesus' ministry. We move from his public ministry on into his private ministry. And so now uh, from John 13 on, we get this really behind-the-scenes, detailed look at Jesus' final few hours with his disciples. And it's just really, really neat to see what Jesus says and what Jesus does in his, in his final hours. And so last week, uh, we watched as Jesus illustrated, one more time, illustrated his love and his humility uh, in, in this really beautiful act of service to his disciples. And he, um, what he does is during his last supper, he, he stands up, he, he leaves his place of honor at the table, he takes off his robes, he takes on the cloth of a servant, he comes to his disciples, he, he bows down in front of them, and he kneels in front of them, he takes their dirty, grimy, stinky feet in his hands, and he washes them clean. Unbelievable. And we said last week that, that Jesus not only washes 11 pairs of feet, he washes 12 pairs of feet. He even washes the feet of the man who's going to betray him in just a few short hours. He washes the feet of Judas. And, and, and Judas, just a few short hours from when Jesus literally is scrubbing the dirt off of Judas' feet, just a few short hours from that time, Judas is going to lead a, a mob of armed, angry men to a secret place where Jesus often prays. Judas shows them where it is, and he points out who this Jesus is, and these men are going to grab Jesus, they're going to capture him, they're going to arrest him, they're going to take him in the middle of the night to an illegal trial, they're going to interrogate him, uh, falsely accuse him, Mock him, spit on him, beat him, torture him, and the next day crucify him. And Judas pulls the trigger. Um, Jesus, knowing this, this is going to happen in just a few short hours, bends down in front of Judas, washes the man's feet. Unbelievable. Amazing, amazing scene. Um, and this is where we're going to pick it up. What we had to do, and this scene just continues. They're still at the Last Supper. What we had to do last Sunday is we basically we had to push pause because we ran out of time. We had to push pause. Today we push play. Okay, we're going to start back up. So this is right where we pick it up. Verse 21 of chapter 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that maybe because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, 
he immediately went out, and it was night. And we'll stop there for a minute. So again, Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples. This is the Passover meal we said last week. So Jesus has just shown that the Passover meal really has just been all about him all of these years. He is the true Lamb of God who's to take away the sins of the world. He's the true substitute. He's the true shelter under whom we find um, you know, safety from the wrath of God. He has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He's illustrated this in a bunch of different ways. He's illustrated this by getting down and washing their feet. He said, I'm going to be the one. It's it's through my humility. It's through my act of service that you're going to be cleansed. He does all this, and then he sits back down in his place. And then John tells us that Jesus is troubled. And John's not just saying that he's a little flustered, right, or he's a little bothered. Um, John says that he is troubled in his spirit. His spirit was troubled. Literally, that means that he was shaken to the core, is what that word means in the Greek. He is shaken to the core. Why? Because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that word betray there is, is pretty significant. The word betray literally means to deliver something, to take, to take um, something out of your hands, to take something off of your hands. Um, for example, remember uh, Joseph from the Old Testament, the young brother who started having all these dreams about his family bowing down to him as his servants. Okay, his brothers get a little tired of that, as you can imagine, and so what do they do? They betray him. They literally deliver him into the hands of slave traders so they don't have to listen to his stories anymore. To betray somebody means to take their power and remove it from off of you. That's what it means to betray someone. This is what Jesus says that one of them is going to do that night. That one of them in that room is going to take Jesus and remove his influence and his power off of him, off of his life. You know, we, we kind of demonize Judas, don't we? Judas is just this, you know, infamous character. But what I've had to come to grips with this week is that I am far more like Judas than I am like Jesus. Um... Because this is what we do every time we sin. This is the very essence of sin. It's, it's, we basically say to God, I don't want your, your power or your control over my life right now. I choose to remove your influence, your power, off of my life. I want to do things the way I want to do them. It's my life. I belong to me. I'll live the way I want to live. But what we saw earlier on in chapter 13, Jesus says, he tells the disciples after he's, he's washed their feet, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. That's what he says. You call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. And here's the deal. We're, we're okay with Jesus as our teacher, aren't we? We're, we're okay with that. That's fine. Um, but the trouble comes when he says that he's our Lord. It means master. It means king. We're cool with Jesus as our teacher because teachers, um, teachers inspire us with knowledge, right? They give us information. Uh, but teachers cannot force you to put that information into practice. We have some teachers in here, and that's got to be pretty frustrating to you, right? You've given them this great knowledge, and you're like, oh, if you just listen to me. <laughs> teachers are like, kind of like consultants. You can ask a consultant their advice. They've got expert advice that they can give to you. They can assess the situation. They, 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 you know, consultants can look at your situation, and they can give you a detailed report on what you should do in your you know, business or in your situation, but ultimately, when they hand you that report, it's up to you to you know, determine what you do with it. You could take that report from that consultant who speaks into your situation, and you can take it and you can put that report in the shredder and never look at it again. You can put it in the file cabinet never to look at it again. Or you can read that report and you can do what it says. But that's up to you. That's a consultant. 
But Jesus has said here, I'm not interested in being a consultant. He says, I am your teacher and your Lord. We not only learn from Jesus, we also must obey him. And one of the men present there that night just outright rejected this. He was going to betray Jesus. He was going to deliver Jesus, remove Jesus' power and his influence from off of his life once and for all. So Jesus says, one, one, of, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to deliver me uh, into the hands of the Pharisees. Uh, and, and the disciples have no idea. This is what's really interesting to me. The disciples have no idea who it's going to be. The disciples are looking around like, I wonder who it's going to be. It's not like, I knew it. You know, that Judas or that, you know, that John, man, he just seems conniving. They have no idea who it's going to be. And so Peter, Simon Peter, we're told, motions to the disciple who is seated to the right of Jesus, right? Because he's looking around. He's curious. He's want to know who it's going to be. So he's so curious, in fact, he gets the attention of the guy sitting to the right of Jesus at the supper. He's like, hey, ask him who it's going to be. Peter's obviously not sitting that close to Jesus, right? But he, he motions the one who is sitting close to Jesus. And he asks him, who, who's it going to be? And so just to make sure we get the scene right in our minds, um, if you've got Da Vinci's painting, the, the Last Supper, in your mind, get, get it out of your mind. That's not how it looked, okay? I think in that's, I, I didn't go back and look at the picture, but I think they're standing, right? It, it's a straight table, and I think they're standing. Maybe they're sitting, but e- either way, it's not, that's not the way it looked. Um, it, it's it's a, actually a U-shaped table. It looks like this. And it's, it's, they're not sitting, they're not standing, uh, it's not even at, at normal height. Uh, that kind of a meal, they would ha- it would have been really, really low to the ground. And so um, they actually, they're not even kind of crouching down there to eat. What they actually do is they, they, they and that's, I don't know why, this is what they did. They, they lay down and they're, they're, they're kind of head is kind of leaning over the table. They're like half laying down, half sitting. Their, their feet are kicked out from behind them. They're leaning on their left shoulder and they're using their right hand to eat. Okay? And so they're all kind of like this. Um, it's, all, it's all straight. And so this is the way they're eating. And so that means, and again, this is a very different culture than we do. We think this is kind of funny, but, the way that, but they were all pretty close to each other as well. And so the guy sitting to the right of Jesus, who's leaning like this, Jesus, it, it's almost like they're spooning. Forgive me, but that, that, that's, that really is the best description. It, that, that's, that's what they're doing. Je- so the guy to the right of Jesus literally kind of has his head on, on Jesus' chest. As they're eating. This is the way they did it. Um, and so it wouldn't have been a big deal. G, you know, Peter motions to, to, to this guy sitting to the right of the man who is sitting to the right of Jesus. You know, ask him. And so he's literally able to just kind of put his head up and say, hey, who is it? Who are you talking about? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, the one who I give this morsel to after I have dipped it uh, in the wine. After he's dip, dipped the morsel. And so Jesus dips the piece of bread in the wine and hands it to Judas. And I don't think I mentioned this. Basically, every scholar that I read, almost across the board, um, believe that the guy sitting to the right is actually John. Okay? I'm almost positive this is John. We're going to refer to him as John. Uh, and so John asks him, you know, who is it? And, uh, and uh, he, he says, one who I've, given, you know, who I've given this morsel to after I've dipped it. Jesus dips a piece of bread in the wine and then he hands it to Judas. And I can almost guarantee you that John's mouth would have dropped at this. Judas? You know, there, there, we, we, we think of the 12. Je- Jesus had a lot of disciples. Why, I, I, I think John would have been shocked because J- Judas was one of the inner 12. He was hand-selected by Jesus. He was hand-chosen by, by Jesus to be one of the inner 12. And, not to mention, Judas had a position. 
right? He, he, had a, he had a title. He had a responsibility. Judas was the treasurer for that group. He's our Glenn Ballard. Glenn Ballard is our Judas. Yeah. But seriously, you don't trust somebody. That, that just goes to show you how much we trust Glenn Ballard. You don't, you don't trust somebody with your finances unless he's trustworthy, unless he seems legit. And when, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no graphs. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, when Judas, when Judas gets up and leaves, everybody says, there goes Judas off to take care of the poor again. They have to go take care of business. I mean, you think about that. Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me. And then just moments later, Jesus tells Judas, go do what you've got to do. And make it quick. And he walks out, and nobody even for a second thinks that it's Judas. And this, this tells us, this isn't just an interesting narrative. This tells us something pretty important, doesn't it? Judas was really good at faking it. He was really good at deceiving people. And he might have even been deceiving himself. I don't know. He might have even been deceiving himself. But Judas shows us something really important. It's not enough just to hang with the right people. It's not enough um, to have the position, to have the title. It's not enough to rely on your ministry activity. It's not enough to rely on your Bible knowledge. Um. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus, Jesus tells Nicodemus, uh, remember Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus in secret and says, uh, Jesus, how, how can I be truly saved? You know, he'd done a whole lot. He was one of the religious elite. He had tried really, really hard, but he just could tell that there was still a, a disconnect between him and God. How can I be saved? And Jesus basically looks at him and says, it's not enough to be one of the religious elite. It's not enough to try to follow all of the rules. It's not enough to know the Bible, the Old Testament, in and out. He says, if you want to be saved, you must be what? Born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus says, wait, what? How, you want me to re-enter into my mother's womb and then come back out? This doesn't even make sense. Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, no, 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 not of the flesh, but born of God. You need to be born into the family of God. Basically, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and Jesus is telling us today that, that what we are in need of is not behavior modification. It's personal conversion. It's spiritual conversion. He, he, he tells Nicodemus, it's not that you need new habits. You need a new heart. And that's not something that you can create. That's a work of God. Nicodemus looked great on the outside. He was one of the elite in the religious world but he was dead on the inside. In the same way, Judas looked great on the outside, but he was dead on the inside. Think, about, think, think for a second about uh, Judas's resume. Uh, Judas, and he, here's, here's why I'm saying this. Because there, there have been seasons in my life, in a room this size, you might, you might be going through this right now, but it, there have been seasons in, in the 20 plus years that I've been a follower of Jesus where I have questioned whether or not I'm actually a child of God. And oftentimes, there, that, that comes during seasons where I'm really struggling with certain sin. Maybe there's been some intellectual doubts that I've had, but there have been certain seasons where I've thought, I don't know, if I, what if I wasn't sincere? 
in my faith? What if I didn't truly surrender? Anybody been there? And it, can I tell you what my, my natural reaction is when those, when those times happen? Well, I better join a Bible study. I better start sharing my faith more. I better start doing some more things. That's my, that's my natural reaction. I better start trying harder. Better start building up my resume. Then maybe I'll get accepted. But think, think for a second about Judas's resume. Judas sat under the greatest preacher of all time. Judas had the greatest small group experience of all time. Right? Judas had personal mentors. Judas not only had godly men speaking into his life, he had the God-man speaking into his life. And he spent years with them, three years. Judas had a greater amount of spiritual input than you and I could ever dream of. Not only that, but he also had the output. Not just the input, but the output. Judas was serving. Again, for one thing, he had the position. He had, he had a designated responsibility within the 12, but he was even serving those outside as well. You know, we're told over and over in the Gospels that all the disciples went and did these things. That includes Judas. Judas, went, uh, Judas was one of the men who was serving the 5,000 when Jesus was multiplying the bread and the fish. He was one of the men serving that, that, that day. Judas was one of the men who was sent out to go preach in the villages ahead of Jesus proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. You know, Judas was one of the men who was out healing. Judas was one of the men out out, uh, preaching. He was one of the men out casting out demons. Judas, his ministry probably saw many, many men, women, and children come to know Jesus, come to place their faith in Jesus. And yet, Judas was never a Christian. Judas was never born again. So here's the question that, that, that we ask today. Not just today, maybe, like I said, you might be in that season that I was in. Maybe you will be in a year. I, I, I hope not. Maybe you have been here. But here's the question we ask. Sometimes we ask, is, is God in my life? Am I truly born again? Am I sincere in my faith? Well, when, the, when those doubts come up, when those questions come up, how do you answer that? Do you say, well, yeah, I go to church every Sunday. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, part, of not one, I'm a part of two small groups. I'm part of prayer and share. I go and I, I'm one of our elders. Is that how we answer that question? Do we look at our activity or our church attendance or who our mentors are because Judas would destroy you there? Do we look at you know, how many sermons we sat under or how great our theological knowledge is because Judas would destroy you there? Do you look at how many people's lives you touch, how many people's lives you've changed? Judas would destroy you there. So what do we do? And don't get me wrong, please, please don't think that I'm, 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 I'm bashing any of those things in, in any way, shape, or form. A, a true Christian, a genuine Christian, will be motivated, will be motivated to learn God's word, to study God's word, to memorize God's word, and, and to put it in their heart and to meditate on it day and night, and not to turn from it to the right hand or to the left. A, a true Christian will want to meditate on God's word. A true Christian will want to have mentors in their life. A true Christian will want to go out and share their faith and help people in need. But listen, my point is, you can do all of those things without God. It is possible to learn about the Bible without God. It is possible to share the gospel without God. It is possible to help people in need without God, without the Holy Spirit in your life. Judas shows us that. He did all that. So how, how do we know? When, when, those, when those seasons come into our life and you say, am I a child of God? How do I know if I was sincere in my faith? 
You know, there have been times where I've actually talked to, to men in my life or I've heard other people that have, that have had similar stories and they've talked to pastors, they've talked to friends. Sometimes the reaction is, don't ask those questions. Those questions are silly. Don't be asking those questions. You're fine just the way you are. Here's the deal, and this is not a, this is not a popular verse to, to, to preach off of, um, but there's a verse in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 13, where Paul actually tells the Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. He actually says, test yourselves. And this is after, you know, a couple of letters, I think actually three letters, we've got two of them, but a few letters where he's had to kind of call him out on some stuff, and he actually says, you need to check and see if you're born again. You're part of the church of God. It's not, not a popular one to talk about. I'm gonna, we're going to walk away from it right now. <laughs> but how do we do that? And again, what's the, what's the test? What's our diagnostic? Is it how busy we are? Is it how much we know? What does the Bible say? The Bible says that we judge our nature, whether we are uh, children of God or whether we are basically still children of the world. We judge our nature in the same way that we judge a tree. How do you know what type of a tree you know, is, is the tree? By the fruit that it bears. You judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. If the Spirit of God is living inside you, you will bear fruit of the Spirit, is what Paul calls it in Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Is it Bible memorization? Is it lives changed? No. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. That's fruit of the Spirit. The question that we must ask as, as we take, as we examine ourselves is not how many lives have I changed, but is my life changing? That's the question. How, not how many lives have I changed, but is my life changing? And here's how we determine that. If, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, ask yourself this. Or better yet, ask somebody who's really, really close to you. Ask your spouse. Ask your parent. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? You know, am I more loving today than I was five years ago? Do I have a greater sense of peace in my life? Do I worry less today than I did five years ago, ten years ago? Do I, do I have, you know, a greater contentment? Am I more patient today than I was ten years ago? The Bible tells us, again, this is not... Don't get me wrong, this is not an overnight process. We know that. But if the Holy Spirit of God has made his home in our heart, which is what we're told, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then he, he, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. Okay? He, 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 he guarantees you, you know, your, your coming resurrection. When you will be made perfect, he, he gives you a guarantee, which is his presence with you, the Holy Spirit with you. Okay? For every believer, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you right now. And he is he's making you new. And if you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, uh, it will begin to change you. Your dead heart will come to life. You will begin to grow. You will begin to be convicted of your sin. A desire will grow within you to put to death the things that are contrary to your new nature. You have a new identity, a new family name. You belong to the, the, you know, to the family of God. The things that are contrary to your nature will begin to be repulsive to you. Very slowly, but very surely, we will grow. And love, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But maybe, maybe you're here today, um, and you'd be honest, and you say, "Well, I'm not actually a follower of Jesus." 
yeah, most, I, I know most of you here today, and, and most of us here have been a part of this church for a long time, and, um, but, but there might be, again, in a room this size, there might be a, uh, a, a, one or two of you here today who, who might, upon some self-analysis and recognize, I come to church. That's what I do. It's part of my Sunday routine. But I, I never really truly placed my faith in Jesus. I've never really truly surrendered my heart over to the Lord. Uh, I, I don't see the fruit of the Spirit at all in my life. Or maybe you're here just and you're checking things out and, and you know, maybe you've just you felt, I've just walked so far from God, I just don't think that he could ever uh, truly forgive me, ever truly accept me. If that's your mindset, uh, please look closely at the story. We live 2,000 years later than this story, uh, and, and, and we live in a drastically different culture in a, in a very different part of the world. So it's easy for us to miss some of what Jesus does here in John 13. Um, but let's, let, me, let me try to point some things out here. Uh, Jesus, even though, even though he knows that Judas has already been conspiring against him, even though he knows that Judas has already been you know, in talks with the Pharisees, Jesus still pursues him. Even though he knows you know, Judas is his betrayer, he still pursues him. We talked about this a lot last week. You know, Jesus invites Judas to be a part of his last meal with his disciples. Only Judas would invite his murderer to hang out with him the night before he dies. Jesus proclaims the gospel to Judas with the rest of the disciples that night during the Passover meal. Jesus then gets down and washes, the, uh, washes Judas's feet uh, that night. But not only that, not only what we've already talked about, but, and I, I won't go into it because of our time's sake, but basically commentary after commentary after commentary that I read all say the same thing. Um, because of the way that Jesus interacts with Judas and because of, of, the, of the, what he does with the Morse and all that, every commentary that I read said that Judas is sitting to the left side of Jesus. John's on the right, Judas is on the left. Here's why that's important. Uh, in that culture, the, the seat to the left of, of the host is reserved for the guest of honor. It's the place reserved for, for the person of uh, most intimate friendship, the most intimate of friends. And think about it. Just as John's head is leaning up against Jesus' chest because he's sitting to the right, and where would Jesus' head be? On the chest of Judas. And if that weren't enough, Jesus dips the morsel of bread in his wine and then gives it to Judas. Again, we miss it because we're not in that culture. This, too, is yet another extension. It's another invitation to intimacy and friendship. This is exactly, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Boaz, this is what Boaz does with Ruth when he wants to show Ruth how valuable she is to him. This is what Jesus does to Judas. If you feel like, if you feel like, you know, I've gone so far down the other path, there's no way that Jesus would accept me. Look at what Jesus is doing here. Judas is already in motion with his conspiracy, with his betrayal. And time and time and time and time again, Jesus is pursuing Judas. Invitation after invitation after invitation to repent of what he's doing, to accept Jesus' friendship. God pursues us persistently. Though you may have walked far from God, though you may have conspired against him, though you may have rejected him in the way that you're living your life, though you may have betrayed him in the way that you are living your life, he is extending friendship to you today. Please hear me when I say that. He's extending friendship to you today. In fact, maybe that's why you're sitting in this room this morning listening to this message, because you need to know that Jesus is extending your friendship to you. Don't make the same mistake that Judas made. Receive the friendship. 
Receive the friendship. Put your life in the hands of God. Submit to his control. Don't try to run away from it. Submit to it. Let yourself be cleansed. Let him make his home in your heart, and he will breathe life into your dry bones. We need to keep going. These, these next two sections will be very quick. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here's something um, that, I've, that I never uh, noticed in the passage. So Judas walks out into the night. He's going to go and he's going to put his plan into action. Um, Judas walks out and, and, and look at the very first thing that Jesus says. First thing he says, he says, now it is time. It's begun. The, the wheels are in motion. He's going out. He's getting the mob. He's, they're coming for me. Now is the time. What's the first thing that Jesus does? His death and his suffering is imminent. It's coming. Where does Jesus' mind go? If you look at his first two statements, first thing he says is, now is the time I get to glorify the Father. Now is the time where I get to honor God the Father. And then the second thing he says is, he looks around at those around him and he says, little children. He says, little children, and then he offers some words of encouragement to them. The, the two things on Jesus' mind, when, when, when the, basically the trigger is pulled, now I get to honor the Father, and then he looks in with love and affection and concern for those around him, his followers. Jesus is so unself-absorbed, isn't he? In the face of death, this is what he's thinking about, honoring God and taking care of us. And then he tells the disciples, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And I think he means a couple of things here. He says, first, literally, I, I, they, they can't come with him. Um, they can't and, and they won't. They don't have the moral fortitude to endure uh, what Jesus is about to endure. They cannot go where he is going to go. When the mob approaches, what do they do? They run. They flee. Jesus is left standing there by himself. Everybody abandons Jesus. Um, but I think he's, he's saying more than that. When he says, where I am going, you cannot come. What Jesus is going to do is something that only he can do. As he told Peter earlier in the evening, he, he tells Peter, um, when he's down about to wash Peter's feet, and then Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus says, unless I wash you, you will have no share with me. Unless I wash you. He doesn't say, unless you're clean, then you'll have no share with me. Better go take care of that then. Take care of the grime on your feet. Take care of the grime in your soul, or else I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. It's just another reminder that, that we cannot clean ourselves up by our own efforts. We cannot make a sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of God. This can only come through the death of the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. I like the way John Piper put it. He said, he said, we cannot go to the Father beside Jesus, assisting him. We cannot go to the Father behind Jesus, imitating him. He said, we can only go to the Father through Jesus, depending on him. That's the truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. And then Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. So I thought about this verse a lot this week. This is one we, we know and love. Uh, Jesus says, this is a new commandment that I give you. What's so new about it? You know, thousands of years before the time of Jesus, God told Moses, um, you know, write this down, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. What's so new about loving people? Anybody see it? Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. That's the difference. Just as I have loved you. Um, if you think about the original commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, we, that kind of makes sense to us. We, we actually, we, we can get, uh, you know, what it means to love ourselves. Right? No, nobody in this room has a problem loving themselves. And maybe you think, no, that's not true. You don't know my self-esteem. No, you have a triple problem liking yourself. Um, there's a difference between liking yourself and loving yourself. Um, in this sense, we're not talking about, you know, love is not talking about feeling or emotions or romantic love. This is talking about, you know, caring for somebody's needs, taking care of someone. We don't have a problem loving ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm really good at taking care of my needs. When I'm, when I'm really tired, I find a way to eventually go to sleep, okay? That's me loving myself. Um, when I'm hungry, I will find some food, Right? Um, when I'm thirsty, I will find something to drink. I, I, I don't have no problem loving myself. Um, and, and, and so basically when, when you know, God says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying as, as great your, as, as your, your commitment is to taking care of your own needs, you know, you, to the same degree you need to, to care for the needs of those around you, those who come across your path. To the same degree, to the same level that you are committed to meeting your needs, you meet uh, other people's needs. But then look what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I give you, love your neighbor as I have loved you. So what's the difference? How does Jesus love us? Death. Jesus does not try to meet our needs with the same passion that he tries to meet his own needs. Jesus forsook his needs so that our needs could be met. Jesus doesn't say, you know, he's not telling us, hey, to the same degree that you protect your rights, protect the rights of others. He says, lay down your rights for the rights of others. You see the difference? Before it was on even playing ground. Now he's saying, sacrifice. Give it up for other people. Give up your well-being for the, for the well-being of others. Lay down your power for the sake of others. This is what Christ has done for us. So here's the question that I've been, I've been asking myself this week. This is kind of the self-analysis question. I'd, I, and I just encourage you guys to ask yourself the same questions. When was the last time that I gave up my time? My time. When was the last time that I gave up my time for the sake of someone else? When was the, when was the, the last time that I gave in such a way to someone or to something that it actually cost me something? Cost me something that I actually wanted or even maybe needed. Um, maybe, it, maybe it cost, you know, something that I've been, I've been really looking forward to. Maybe it cost me from padding my bank account that much more. When was the last time that I gave generously, sacrificially? When was the last time that I said no to something that would have brought me personal pleasure or personal benefit but was going to have a negative effect on those around me? When was the last time that I said no to something um, for the sake of someone else? When was the last time that I laid down my rights for someone else? Would you be willing to ask yourself those questions? If you are, again, we talked about what it means to be born again. If you are a born again Christian, if you are a child of the living God, 
We now are in the same family as Christ. We bear that family name. We are united to Christ. The Spirit of God is living inside of us. He has given us a new nature, new DNA, new spiritual DNA. We are beginning to bear the family resemblance. We'll begin to love others like Christ has loved us. How has Christ loved you? Rod just said one, through his death. How has Christ loved you? I think that's worth taking a second and meditating on. How has Christ loved you? Has he forgiven you? Did you deserve it? So who do you need to forgive today? Has he been patient with you? Did you deserve it? So who do you need to be patient with today? Has he pursued you? Has he sacrificed for you? Let's, let's take a look at the last three verses and we're done. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'd lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. If you're not familiar with the story, what Jesus is saying is before the, the, the sun dawns the next morning, Peter will have denied that he ever even knew Jesus. The same man who washed his feet, the same man who Peter is declaring this undying allegiance to, Peter is going to, going to deny that he ever knew him. Um, here's something I, I, I'd never noticed before studying this week. Um, who is the disciple in the room that night when Jesus is talking about somebody you know, betraying him? Who is the, the disciple in the room that night trying to figure out who the betrayer is going to be? Peter, right? Peter. Peter is the one that, that is so curious, in fact, that he actually tells John, hey, ask him who it's going to be. He wants to know. Who, who is, who is going to be the sinner? Who is going to be the one that falls? Who is going to be the one that betrays? Peter is so concerned with other people's failures that he is oblivious to the weakness of his own heart. Peter, rather than humbly looking into his own heart and coming to grips with his own potential failures, his own frailty, spent the supper looking around and judging the hearts of others. What a a great, stark warning to us. We can be so concerned about the state of someone else's heart that we miss the state of our own. And as a result of this, as a result of basically a night of judgmentalism rather than self-analysis and and, and confessing his own weaknesses, Peter, in just a few short hours, is going to make the biggest mistake of his life. So here's the question I want to ask as we close. What is the difference between Judas and Peter? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Because both men are going to forsake Jesus on that night, aren't they? Both, both guys forsake him. And yet, we, like I said earlier, we demonize Judas and we name our kids after Peter. Have you ever met a, a kid named Judas? I've never met a parent that would do that to their child. I, I, I actually, I love Peter. Peter's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. I still relate to Peter. I've never heard you know, many people say, I really relate to Judas. I love Judas. No. What's the difference? 
You can say, well, you know, Jesus just said that Satan entered into Judas. That's kind of a big deal, right? But don't forget, you know, Jesus you know, said about Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. Who's he talking to? Peter. Remember, Jesus says, you know, he's talking about his, um, you know, impending death and resurrection right around the corner. And Peter pulls him aside and says, you know, Jesus, it'll never be. Don't say that. And then, you know, Jesus looks him in the eye and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Your, your mind are on the things of man, not on the things of God. Okay? Um, he, Peter's trying to throw him off course of his mission. And, and, and Jesus associates him with Satan. So that's not it. So what is it? What's the difference? I think this is what it is. It's their response to their sin. It's what they did after they sinned. Again, I've, I've said it several times. When Judas is in the midst of his conspiracy against Jesus, Jesus washes his feet. Jesus gives him the seat of honor. Jesus extends friendship through the morsel of bread. Jesus, over and over and over and over, offers him a way back. Judas could have repented of his sin. He could have come clean and said, Jesus, this is what I was going to do. This is why. He could have come clean. He could have asked for Jesus' forgiveness, but he doesn't. He runs deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin. Even when he comes to his senses, after Jesus has been betrayed, even when he comes to his senses, he does not come to God and ask for grace, ask for, for, ask for forgiveness. He runs off and he takes his own life. When Judas sinned, he ran from God. But what about Peter? Peter, as we know, does exactly as Jesus predicted. That night, he denies Jesus three times, even calling down curses upon himself, swearing, I've never met the man. I don't even know who you're talking about. I've never met him. Peter betrays him, and we're told that when he does the third time, that from a distance where Jesus is being held, Jesus looks over at him and catches Peter's eyes, and Peter's eye realizes that Jesus knows what he has done. He remembers what Jesus had predicted, and Peter is cut to the core. He realizes his sin, and he breaks down, and he starts weeping. And then Jesus dies, and then three days later, Jesus rises again from the dead. And when, when, when the women come into the, to the house, and they tell Peter and the rest of the disciples, he's alive. He's back from the dead. Who's the first one out the door running to the tomb? Peter. And, and three, you know, days later when, when, when you know, John and Peter are out in the boat and they see Jesus out on the seashore and, and they're out fishing and they recognize Jesus for who he is, what does, John do, or what does Peter do? Does he paddle away as fast as he can? Oh no, you know, I'm going to have to give an account for what I did. Get away, run. No, d- does he even pull up the anchor and kind of make his way back into the shore? Doesn't do that either. You know what he does? He dives into the water. A hundred yards off the shore, he dives into the water and swims as hard as he can and comes sopping wet and falls at the feet of Jesus Christ. One man runs from God, the other man runs to God. What do you do? What you do after you sin says a whole lot about your understanding of the gospel. When you sin, when I sin, this is what I've had to ask myself this week. When I sin, do I, do I just try to give God some, do I have to, you know, God, I'm going to give you a few minutes to cool down before I come and talk to you? Do, do you kind of, when you sin, do you ever say, you know, God, 
I need to show God that I really mean, I've repented. I'm, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I've repented. I'm going to give him 24 hours to really show that I mean business this time. I'm really going to be good this time. After about 24 hours, then I'll confess my sin to him. Then I'll ask for forgiveness because he'll have had time to cool down and I'll have had time to show that I really mean business this time. Is that your reaction when you sin? If this is it, that then it shows that at least in that moment, you're not understanding the good news of the gospel. Here's the gospel. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Not there will be no condemnation after you've proven yourself. Not there will be no condemnation once God calms down a little bit. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word is not in, you know, it's not in there just for no reason. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have submitted to his control, you let him wash you clean your sins, there is, you have no unforgiven sin in your life. There is no, you know, there, there's no sin big enough, or too big rather, there's no sin too big for the cross of Christ. So when we sin, we, 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 we turn and we run as fast as we can back to God. For we know it is only in him, it is only through him that we'll find healing. It is only in him, it is only through him that we'll find cleansing. We, we jump out of the boat and we get to Jesus as fast as we can. It doesn't matter what stands between us and Jesus. A body of water stands between us and Jesus, we jump in the water. It doesn't matter if we look like a fool. Peter probably looked like a fool, jumping in the water with all of his clothes on, getting to Jesus. All that matters is that we come to Jesus, we confess our sin, and we can be confident as we come to the throne of grace that we will find mercy and help in our time of need. We will, we, will, we, will, we will be forgiven and we will be restored that fellowship. Do you know how we can be so confident? Here's the key. Verse 21, the very first verse that we started with, said something, uh, after he had said these things, his, uh, his spirit was troubled. Okay? He was troubled in his spirit. You know the very next verse that we're going to look at next week? Alan, do you remember it? Okay, I, I put him on the spot. Alan's preaching next week, so... Um, 14 verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay? Jesus says, or John says about Jesus, after he said these things, his heart, his spirit was troubled. And then just a few verses later, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? How can our hearts not be troubled? Well, because his spirit was troubled on our behalf. He was troubled for us. How, how can we have joy? Well, because he took the sorrow and the suffering for us. Because of the cross of Christ. When you begin to question whether or not, will God accept me? You look to the cross of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.